The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 38. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hamlety. This week's text gives us a new and very particular topic to discuss in the staging of the play. While a great deal of Shakespeare's staging is implied by the internal logic of the scenes as they go along, there are certain iconic and memorable setups that he created as express responses to the physical space of his theatre, The Globe. Particular examples that spring to mind might include the so-called balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet, or the chorus in Henry V making reference to the wooden O of the globe itself. Here, in Act 1, Scene 5 of Hamlet, we get a very particular set of stage directions, wherein Shakespeare does a most extraordinary thing by insisting that the ghost perform underneath the stage. There are a variety of ghosts that show up in plays throughout Shakespeare's career, from Richard III all the way down to Cymbeline. In 1599, Shakespeare had already written Julius Caesar, which also features a noteworthy ghost. The play focuses on the assassination of Julius Caesar, but the title character comes back as a ghost before the story ends. Caesar's ghost appears to haunt Brutus, one of the lead conspirators in the murder, he who made the unkindest cut of all, and indeed prompted one of Shakespeare's most famous Latin quotes, et tu Brute. All of Brutus's actions in the latter half of the play are haunted by the murder, and indeed Brutus dies with Caesar's name on his lips. This figure of a ghost appearing and haunting a lead character's actions is noteworthy here, since we are reaching the end of a comparable scene in Hamlet. What's different here is that the ghost has now left, and Shakespeare seems to put him literally under the stage. The dramatic effect is intense, as we will see as we go, but first let's pick up the dialogue. Hamlet has just asked Horatio and Marcellus to promise that they will not discuss what they have seen on the battlements tonight. They agree in unison. My lord, we will not. Hamlet then ups the ante, upgrading the request from promising to swearing. Nay, but swear it. In faith, my lord, not I, nor I, my lord, in faith. Upon my sword. We have sworn, my lord, already. Indeed, upon my sword, indeed. Hamlet's eagerness here is intense. He seems particularly concerned that the two witnesses guarantee that they will not tell anyone what they've seen tonight. He hasn't yet told them anything of what the ghost revealed, so as far as Horatio and Marcellus are concerned, Hamlet just wants them not to tell anyone else that the ghost has been seen. They might therefore have to get Bernardo to swear too, since he saw the ghost in Act 1, Scene 1. They're agreeing with Hamlet, if nothing else, in order to calm him down, and then Shakespeare gives us a shock. The ghost shouts up from below the stage. Swear. Rather like Banquo's ghost in Macbeth, it appears that the ghost in Hamlet can choose who gets to see him and who doesn't. Obviously, he's made himself visible on the battlements in the hope that the likely lads up there would get Hamlet to come and see him too. And of course, this worked. But now we get a further development in his abilities. We have to wonder who can hear him as well. There's plenty of room for a production to decide whether Marcellus and Horatio can hear the ghost rumbling from below the stage. If they can, they're clearly going to agree and do what he commands. If they cannot, it's a very dramatic beginning for the onset of Hamlet's madness. Whatever about seeing Hamlet go off and chat with a ghost that they themselves have seen too, 
it would be far more alarming to see him start responding to off-stage voices that they cannot hear. Whether they've heard him or not, Hamlet replies to the ghost beneath the stage. Aha, boy, sayst thou so? Art thou there, true penny? Come on, you hear this fellow in the cellarage, consent to swear. Tom Truepenny is apparently a reference to a 1553 play called Ralph Royster Doyster, believe it or not, and the name here is used to refer to an honest man, Truepenny. Hamlet has already told Horatio that the ghost is honest and is reinforcing the point here. Hamlet points out that the ghost is in the cellarage. The word seems more appropriate for the physical location under the theatrical stage than a floor below the battlements of the castle we are pretending to see. The lines between fantasy and reality are very blurred here. Whether Shakespeare is walking a tightrope or not, Hamlet is suggesting that the other men can indeed hear the ghost's cry. Horatio continues, but does not give any clues either way. He simply says, Propose the oath, my lord. So Hamlet does so, a formalised version of the promise he's already requested, by his sword, no less. Never to speak of this that you have seen, swear by my sword. The ghost again rumbles from below with another command, to swear. Hamlet's response has generated a lot of discussion over the years. He says, oh, Hic et ubique, then we'll shift our ground. Come hither, gentlemen, and lay your hands again upon my sword. Never to speak of this that you have heard, swear by my sword. This segment begins with a little Latin, hic et ubique. It means here and everywhere, and is thought to be a reference to the characteristic shared by both God and the devil, an ability to be in one place and everywhere at the same time. Noting this, Hamlet insists that the men move to a different part of the stage before they swear again. This time, he insists that they swear never to talk about what they've heard. Again, a fairly empty promise if the two gentlemen haven't heard the ghost at all. Again, they're swearing by Hamlet's sword, and again the ghostly voice comes up from below the stage, enjoining them to swear by his sword. Hamlet seems almost to be enjoying himself with all of this, and is impressed by the ghost's ability to move around under the ground. Well said, old mole. Canst work at the earth so fast. A worthy pioneer. Once more remove, good friends. He calls the ghost a mole, similarly renowned for its ability to dig around underground. A worthy pioneer, too, a soldier whose job it would be to dig into the earth and plant mines. Shakespeare is playing around with the physical location, an actor potentially under the stage, with the associations of other creatures that might make burrowing and digging their profession. There was actually an effort made at the reconstructed Globe Theatre in London to have the ghost call from beneath the stage during a production of the play. I don't know if the construction is substantially different in the new version of the building, but by all accounts it wasn't feasible to have the ghost under the stage because the audience could never hear him and he could never hear his cues. For all that, the text of the play makes pretty explicit reference to his being down below and will again be before the scene is over. I don't quite know whether there's a particular ritual in play here, a threefold charm that Hamlet might be winding up along the lines of the witches in Macbeth. Hamlet moves to three different places. The ghost doesn't get any additional stage directions. All we have on the page for him is the designation beneath. 
there's a lot of potential in the scene for a director and a group of actors to explore here, certainly. Hamlet insists that they relocate again, once more remove good friends. And with that, we move into the final section of this scene, and indeed this act. For now, I'm going to leave you with an interesting nugget that I happened upon while researching this week's episode. I've mentioned on numerous occasions that this play has been mined for generations for phrases and quotations that gave their names to other pieces of literature and art. Certainly among the most obscure has to be a play written by a gentleman called Richard Head. He wrote it sometime in the middle of the 17th century, and according to records, it was acted privately with general applause. The play was a comedy called, believe it or not, Hick et Ubique, or The Humours of Dublin. The title is charming at the very least, and if I get my hands on a copy, I shall of course let you know how it is. I hope you join me for the next episode, number 39 in this series, in which we shall reach the end of scene 5, and thereby conclude Act 1 of Hamlet. I'll talk to you then.